Well, good morning. Certainly is a pleasure to be here with you this morning. It feels like it's been a really long time <clears throat> since I've been here. I think the three Sundays ago it snowed and we didn't meet. Then the following Sunday I was in Florida. And then last week I was under the weather. So I am very excited to be back here with you all this morning. I actually want to take a moment and just thank Pastor Tyler for stepping in in my absence last week. I reached out to him last minute and said, hey, I'm, I'm just not going to be able to make it. And from what I understand, he stepped in and did a fine job as always. There have been several times where he had asked me to uh, step in for him last minute, but last week the shoe was on the other foot, as they say. And so I want to thank him for that. And I also want to thank you. I had so many of you reach out to me, to my wife, just to check on us to see how we're doing. So I am blessed. We are blessed by you, each of you, your faithfulness, your commitment to serve and love our family does not go unnoticed. So for those that may be joining us for the first time that don't know me, my name is Brandon Reed, and I have the privilege and joy is of serving as one of the pastors here with Christ Covenant Fellowship. This week we will continue in our series in the book of John. So if you have uh, your copy of God's wor Word, would you open it to John chapter 1? A couple weeks ago, Pastor Gabe gave us a wonderful introduction, a great overview of the book of John. If you haven't uh, listened to that, if you weren't here, make sure you go to our Spotify page. You can listen to it there or our YouTube account as well. Um, he did a great job giving us some of the major themes, just an overview of what the Gospel of John entails. So I would encourage you to check that out. This morning, we will be in John 1, and we will go through verses 1 through 5. So I want to read the text that's before us this morning and pray and ask God to bless our time and be at work here this morning. John chapter 1, starting at verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the opportunity to gather together once again this morning. Father, we have a profound and incredible text before us this morning. God, I have a task before me that I'm not really worthy of, God, that I'm not really qualified to do. I could never speak to the glory that you deserve. So, Father, I ask that your spirit would be at work during this time. God, that as I speak, people wouldn't remember me, but they would see all of you in your glory, and they would remember the wonderful, profound, glorious truths of these verses, and they would be moved to a place, we would be moved to a place of worship in the name of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name I pray. Amen. Amen. So what I want to do is simply begin by posing a question. And here's the question. Who is Jesus? I want you to ponder on that for a second. Who is Jesus? How would you answer that question? 
I don't want you to give the answer you think that I would desire. I want you to actually, in your heart right now where you sit, how would you respond to that question? You know, if I went out into the street here and I stopped 100 people and I asked them that question, I said, who is Jesus? I'd probably get a wide variety of responses, everything from Jesus is just a really good moral instructor, or Jesus is actually just a fictional character in a fictional story, or Jesus is a revolutionary, Jesus is a social reformer, Jesus was a political protester, Jesus was a lunatic. And then some people may say that Jesus actually is Lord. A lot of different responses you would receive. No person throughout human history has created more controversy, generated more conflict and debate than this man named Jesus from, the, Jesus from this city, Nazareth. So again, the question is, who is he? Listen, this is the single most important question that anybody could ever ask or answer. This is a subject worth broaching. It is worth our attention and reflection. In fact, this is a question that we all must grapple with at some point. Who is Jesus? In fact, this is a question that Jesus himself asked. If you recall the encounter with Jesus and his disciples in Matthew chapter 16, and it reads, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they replied, some say you're John the Baptist, others say you're Elijah, and still others say you're Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. But then Jesus says to them, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And then the beautiful response of Simon Peter here, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. You see, the reason that this is such an important question is because it has eternal significance. You see, what you believe about Jesus has profound implications. The way that you respond to the question, who is Jesus, will determine where you rest for eternity. So again, I would ask every person in this room to consider their response to that question. Are you like Peter? Do you believe that Christ is the Messiah and the Savior and the Son of God? Or maybe you have a different opinion about Jesus. Maybe you believe something totally different about him. See, division about Christ is nothing new. If you read through the gospel accounts, there were always people who were divided over Jesus. There would be different responses to Christ. And there's a bit of a separation, a, a further, an eternal division based on what we make of Christ. There are the sheep and the goats. There's the wheat and the chaff, the saved and the unsaved. And it all hinges upon what we make of Christ Jesus. And again, the reality is we all must answer this question. There is no avoiding it. Commentator James Montgomery Boyce is helpful here. and He says this as it pertains to the question of Christ. He says, what do you think about Jesus Christ? Who is he? According to Christianity, this is the most important question you or anyone else will ever have to face. It is important because it is inescapable. You will have to answer it sooner or later in this world or the world to come. And it's important because the quality of your life here and your eternal destiny depend 
upon your answer. Who is Jesus Christ? If he was only a man, then you can safely forget him. But if he is God, as Christians claim and believe, then you should yield your life to him. You should worship him and serve him faithfully, end quote. Listen, in all honesty, here's the reality. Everyone in this room has already answered that question. We've all already made our decision about Jesus Christ. If you're a believer in this room and you've surrendered to his lordship, you've acknowledged him as uh, Lord and Savior, the Son of God and the Messiah by the power of the Holy Spirit, then praise God for that revelation. But maybe you're in here and you say, I just don't believe that. I don't believe that Jesus is God. So that's one of two responses. But there's actually a third group of individuals in this room. Maybe you sit in here this morning, you say, you know what? I don't think about Jesus at all. I don't consider whether he is or isn't. Guess what? You've answered that question as well. And you've decided that Jesus isn't worth your time. He is not worthy. We've all answered the question already. See, this, the identity of Christ is of primary importance. Acknowledging his divinity is central to understanding just who Jesus is. Listen, to the believers in this room, we must understand the deity and the divinity of Christ because it is absolutely fundamental to the Christian faith. It is essential. I hope you recognize the significance of getting this right. Listen, there are a lot of doctrines that we can disagree on, and believe me, we do. We're not always going to land in the same theological camps, and that's okay. We can differ on a lot of issues and still fellowship as brothers and sisters in Christ. However, the doctrine of Christ and his deity is not one of those issues. That is absolutely primary. You see, to the question, who is Jesus, the Apostle John already had his answer. He had clearly made up his mind about Christ. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John writes his gospel account with one purpose in mind. He wanted to leave no doubt. He wanted to be sure that his readers would understand how to answer the question, who is Jesus? For John, the issue had been settled. He was convinced about the identity of Christ. And he knew Jesus to be this eternal, preexistent, forever glorious son of God. He knew that Jesus was God incarnate, veiled and flesh, as he writes in uh, chapter 1 here, verse 14, as it refers to Jesus, he says, he became flesh. He dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, as one of the 12 disciples, John had the privilege of walking with Jesus, of being an eyewitness to his earthly ministry. He got to see Jesus' glory and majesty and splendor firsthand. You see, as we look at these first five verses of the book of John, in fact, this entire prologue, right, all of John chapter 1, verse, or chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, what we call this prologue, all of it sets the table for the remainder of John's gospel. These verses contain foundational truths about Christ that are necessary for us understanding who he is, what he's done, the meaning of this gospel account. It is essential that John first establishes Christ as the Son of God, as one with the Father, 
For this is what gives Jesus' teaching authority. This is what gives legitimacy to his works and his miracles. This is what solidifies Jesus' claims about himself. And this is what gives weight to everything that we read in the rest of this gospel account. So as we look at this text before us this morning, I believe John is pointing us to three truths about the identity of Jesus Christ. So that's what I want to do. I want to use these three truths as our outline or our takeaways for this morning. And number one would be this. Jesus is the pre-existent, eternal God. Jesus is the pre-existent, eternal God. Number two, Jesus is creator. Jesus is creator. And number three, Jesus is the light. Jesus is the light. So my aim this morning with the time that we have together is to clearly communicate the truth about Jesus Christ based upon what we have before us this morning. And my hope is that your Christology, and that's just a word that means how you think about Jesus, the doctrine of Christ, what you believe about his person and his work. My hope is that your Christology would be rooted in biblical truth that you would be able to answer the question, who is Jesus accurately and confidently? My hope is that you would respond to this question like the apostle Peter, that you would know and confess that Jesus is the Savior, the Messiah, the forever glorious Son of God. My hope is that from these verses you see the excellency and the worth of Christ, the God-man come to save and that you would leave here worshiping him. I also want to offer a bit of a disclaimer here. Most, a lot of this text may feel a bit, may feel a bit academic because these verses aren't necessarily filled with principles for Christian living, but they are, however, filled with the glories of Christ. So that makes them worth our time. So let's walk through these together. So point number one, or heading number one, if you're taking notes again, is Jesus is the pre-existent eternal God. And we see that in verses one and two. Listen, I'm going to go ahead and let you know something right now. I'm just going to show my hand. We are going to spend the majority of our time right here in just verses one and two. This is going to make up most of the time that we have here together this morning because this is such a pivotal point. These truths are decisive. They are crucial in affirming who Jesus is. So we're going to spend probably 75% of our time just in verses 1 and 2. So let's look at them together. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now, before I go any further, maybe you're asking yourself, well, how do we know that John is talking about Jesus here? How do we know that this is who he is referring to? It says in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. How do we know this is Christ? Well, two things, quickly. First of all, when we look at verse 2, it says, He was in the beginning with God. So John refers to this word as he. This pre-existent eternal word has the distinct personality that leads John to use this pronoun in reference to the word, he. This word suddenly becomes he. Secondly, let's look again at a verse that I just read a few moments ago. John chapter 1, verse 14, as it pertains to the word. It says, and the word became flesh. 
and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is what? The only Son from the Father. So it is clear evidence, as from the text, from what we have before us, that the word is used here to clearly reference Christ Jesus. Would we all agree upon that? Amen? Are we good? Okay. Amen. So it's interesting to me that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John uses the word as a way to describe Jesus. Now, the word that's used here is the Greek word logos. Now, this would have been a concept or a term that had meaning to both Jews and Gentiles, right? For Greek philosophers, they understood logos to be this impersonal, almost abstract idea. So for Stoics, the Lagos was the source of order within the universe. It was the principal reason for which everything existed. See, they didn't necessarily believe in other gods, believe in gods, but they held this idea of Lagos in high esteem because they believed that that was the purpose that everything existed. They thought that everything had been brought forth by this concept of Lagos, this impersonal intellectual force. But see, the Lagos wasn't just a Greek or philosophical concept. This idea of the word, specifically the word of the Lord, was a significant theme throughout the Old Testament as well. This is an idea that would have been well known to the Jews also. So from reading the Old Testament, we know that the word of the Lord was active. It worked in several different ways. First of all, we know that it was active in revelation. Right? God's word would reveal things to his people, certain realities, certain truths, certain prophecies. For example, you might read in the Old Testament where it says the word of the Lord came to Isaiah or the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel or Jeremiah or to Abraham when God establishes his covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15. So we understand that the word of God had an active role in Revelation. We also know that the word of the Lord was active in deliverance. And this means like general or specific provision for God's people. The word of God was very active in that role as well. For example, we'll look at Psalm 107. In the midst of distress, God's people cry out to him desperately. In Psalm 107, verse 20, verse 20 reads, He sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. Or think about Isaiah 55, verses 9 and 10, one of my favorite chapters in all of the Bible. It says, For as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So John's Jewish readers would have understand the word of God to carry this power of deliverance, the ability to be actively at work amongst God's people. And finally, number three, we know that God's word was active in creation. And the most obvious example of this is Genesis 1, the creation account, which says the Lord spoke all things into existence. But we also have texts like Psalm 33, 6, which says this, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all of their hosts. Now, I'll comment on this more in just a little bit when we get to verse 3. 
But this shows the power of the word to bring forth life, the power of God's word to create. And this is why this is essential. I think commentator D.A. Carson is helpful here in summarizing this idea. And he says this, quote, God's word in the Old Testament is his powerful self-expression in creation, revelation, and salvation. And the persecution, or excuse me, the personification of the word makes it suitable for John to apply it as a title to God's ultimate self-disclosure, the person of his own son. So the way that the word of God lives and personified is shown in its ultimate and greatest fashion as it is attributed to Christ the son here in these verses. So what's happening is John is presenting his readers with this idea of the word, one that would have been familiar to both Jews and Gentiles. So now that we understand a little bit about the background of the word, what do we learn about the word? What do these verses teach us about the word? And here I believe is where we find some primary truths that describe the very essence and nature of Christ Jesus. See, what is communicated here in verses one and two is crucial to determining our Christology. The truth about Jesus that John lays out here underscores his eternal preeminence, and it helps to set the stage for what is to come. It is only by seeing Christ for who he is that we're truly able to fully understand and appreciate John's gospel. These are glorious and magnificent realities about the identity of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's look at this again. It says, in the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. What does John do here? He begins his account by telling us in no uncertain terms that Jesus is God, the preexistent, self-sustaining creator of the universe. And I love that John communicates this in the simplest way, so simple that a child could understand it. He says the Word was God. Here, John expresses the most profound truth in all of the universe in the clearest way. Yet the simplicity of this statement makes it no less astounding. I want you to think about the Grand Canyon. And if you describe it to someone, it's just a big hole in the ground. That sounds really simple, doesn't it? Until you go out there and you actually see it for what it is, and it's in front of you, and it is just overwhelming. It's similar to what's happening here. You might breeze past these words in your time of study. The word was God. It's communicated very simply. But when you see what John is actually saying here, that too is astounding and overwhelming, that the word was God. I want you to really focus on the truth of this text. I want you to see the overwhelming magnitude of what John is communicating to us here. Friends, this is meant to be a staggering and amazing reality, one that captivates the minds of John's reader. And again, this is absolutely crucial to understanding Christ and who he is and what he's done. Verses 1 and 2, they give us three attributes of Christ that are at the core of his identity. Number one would be his eternal nature. See, verse 1 says, in the beginning was the word. See, where the book of Matthew begins with uh, the genealogy or the lineage of Christ, and then Mark and Luke kind of begin with John the Baptist introducing him as the forerunner of Jesus Christ. Here, John goes back even 
further, to before the foundations of the world. He points us to the eternal, preexistent nature of the word that is Christ Jesus. So he opens with a familiar phrase. He says, in the beginning. Now, this phrase would immediately take us back to Genesis chapter 1, which says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You see, where the book of Genesis begins with the account of creation, John begins with the originator of that creation. Here, John points us to a vital truth about Jesus Christ, namely his eternal nature. I want you to look at what it says here. It says, in the beginning was the word. It doesn't say in the beginning became the word. You see, the word was is a crucial part of this text. It indicates that even before all things came into being, before the origins of the universe, before time and history began, there was Jesus Christ. It says, in the beginning was the word. See, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, equal to God the Father, he has no beginning and no end. It can never be said of Jesus that he came into existence or that he came into being at any point in time. He is eternal. He is preexistent. He has always been. Christ is the one through whom the universe had its beginnings. He has a timeless existence. He is not bound by space and time. And here's why this is so important, because that means Jesus is not a created being. Amen? This should be a fairly simple and logical train of thought given the text. If Christ was there before the beginning of creation, he cannot himself be a part of that creation or a result of that creation. Now, there are those that claim Jesus is a created being. There are other religions that will try to hold to that truth. They will try to say that Jesus was also created. Listen, they're selling Jesus Christ incredibly short here. They diminish his worth and his glory by lumping him in with the rest of creation. They're blaspheming the Son of God. Christ is not created. That's not what the text is communicating to us here, and that assertion simply will not do. You see, to deny the eternity of Jesus Christ is to compromise the very essence and nature, the divinity of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, we must get this right. So we understand the uh, eternity of Jesus. We also see the personality of Jesus here. We see his distinctness. John progresses in the way that he presents Christ. He says, in the beginning was the Word. Then he says, uh, in the beginning, the Word was with God. Now, the preposition with is the Greek word pros, P-R-O-S. And this is a word that's also used elsewhere in the New Testament. Just a few examples, Mark chapter 6, verse 3. And it talks about Jesus and his sisters and says, are not his sisters here with us? Mark 14, 49, Jesus says, day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching. 2 Corinthians 5, 8, we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So the idea behind the word that is used here is the idea of a person being with another person, typically in some sort of close proximity or a personal intimate relationship. So when John writes that the word was with God, he is pointing toward the word as a distinct 
person, one who was with God there in the beginning. So one commentator says it this way, John chapter 1 verse 1 implies being on a level with and in communication with God. The logos or the word is not an impersonal principle, but it's to be regarded as living, intelligent, active personality. Did you catch that? Personal, not impersonal. Living. See, this contradicts what the Greeks believed about the word. It's not an impersonal force, but one that is very personal, very active, living. This is Christ Jesus we're talking about here. You see, the meaning behind this verse is far more than simply existing with God. What is communicated here is the idea of two personal beings. Now, because this word was a person with God, enjoying a personal relationship with him, this must mean that this person is also distinguishable from God. See, this is Trinitarian language that we have here. See, if you look back through the history of the church, the creeds and confessions infer, affirm the doctrine of the Trinity. And this is the, one of the verses they use to point to this reality, to support that doctrine. Now, look, I certainly don't have time to go through all that right now. I certainly do not have time to break down the Trinity. That's not what we're going to do right now. But the point being communicated here is significant. What John is establishing is the word is a separate or distinct, right? The word is separate or distinct from God, yet equal to God. See, being with God means the word is a person. He's not an attribute of God or an emanation from God. Jesus, as the second person of the Trinity, is distinguishable from God the Father, yet of the same essence as God the Father. It's important that we understand that. It's important that we understand God's eternity or Jesus' eternity, but also Jesus' personality. Are you still tracking with me? Everybody, are we good? Okay, I know it's a lot. Ride with me. All right, number three. So we see Jesus' eternity. We see his personality. Now we see his deity. And this is probably the most important part of this text. Not only was the word with God, but John says here the word was God. You see, John's assertion of the divinity of the word is the culmination of these verses. See, it's as if we've been slowly ascending the side of a mountain, steadily making our way to the top. And here we finally reach the summit of this mountain where we can take in this breathtaking view from 14,000 feet. Here John's presentation of the word, his declaration of Christ finally reaches its pinnacle. And we see Christ in all of his eternal splendor and glory. And what a glorious truth this is that the apostle John communicates crystal clear. He makes an undoubted pronouncement about Christ. He writes with no doubt, unambiguously, to proclaim that the word that Christ Jesus is God. This is perhaps the clearest and most direct claim to, de to the deity of Christ that you will find anywhere in all of the scriptures. And guess what? This too is a non-negotiable, fundamental tenet of the Christian faith. Listen, they say that doctrine divides this is a place where it should divide. This is a truth upon which we cannot compromise. Say it plainly. Jesus is God. Amen? This is the most important reality about the word that John puts forth in these verses. 
that Jesus Christ is God. He's the incarnate word, the highest and greatest revelation of God to men. He is not some impersonal force. He is not some abstract idea. In fact, quite the opposite. In the greatest act of love and sacrifice, this word takes on flesh. He becomes a man taking on the very nature of humanity without compromising his deity, without sin. You see, the word is this incarnation of divine power, the divine essence and nature that belongs to the rest of the Godhead, belongs to Jesus Christ also. John says it plainly here that the word was God. Now, although John communicates this truth about Jesus with great clarity, there are still those who look to dispute the claim and manipulate John's words. There have always been groups out there that want to combat the truth. There's no shortage of individuals who want to argue against the points that I'm making here this morning. One of the most popular criticisms seeks to attack the original language, right? The Greek, the language in which John records this gospel. And they just claim that, oh, you guys are just misinterpreting the text. That's not actually what John was saying. So the Greek word used here for God is the word theos, or theos, T-H-E-O-S. So skeptics will point out that this word is not preceded by a definite article. So it doesn't say that the word was the God, right? Pointing to the one true living God. It just says the word was God. So they argue that it is an indefinite noun, and therefore it should be translated that the word was divine. So their argument is that, oh, John was just telling you that the word had some divine, God-like qualities. He wasn't actually saying that the word was God. But this argument doesn't stand up because if that's what John wanted to say, if he wanted to say that the word was divine, there was a perfectly serviceable Greek word that he could have used right there. See, commentator Robert L. Raymond says this, no standard Greek lexicon offers divine as one of the meanings of theos, nor does the noun become an adjective when it sheds its article. So what he's basically saying is John isn't telling you uh, things about Jesus like he isn't telling you what Jesus is like. He's telling you who Jesus is. He's telling you who Jesus is. These are statements about Christ's identity. He's not just saying Jesus is like God. He's saying Jesus is God. So aside from the absurd assertion that John was saying that Christ was merely divine, there's also the claim from certain religious groups that John was just saying that the word was a God. So maybe that's what John was saying here. John was just telling you that Jesus is a type of God. But this too is something that John could have clearly communicated if that was his intention. If that's what he wanted to say, he could have easily said that. But that's not the purpose of these texts. John isn't telling us that Jesus is just divine or he's just a God, right? Despite all of the detractors and the skeptics and the critics and all those who, believe me, there's plenty of them. There's plenty of them out there, all the doubters. Even now in our day and age, there are many people who seek to dismiss and reject Christ Jesus as the Son of God. You see, John is an eyewitness to Christ, one who walked with him intimately, was convinced of the deity and divinity of Christ. And not just the Apostle John, take for example, consider the Apostle Paul, who encountered the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. He was also convinced that Christ was indeed the incarnate God. 
Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1, verse 19, he says this as it pertains to Christ. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All the fullness of God. Brothers and sisters, here's what we know from the text according to the scriptures. Christ is fully God in every way, co-equal and co-eternal to God the Father. Jesus isn't just a God, lowercase g. Jesus isn't a divine type of being like some pagan deity of man's creation. He's the one true living God the same essence and same nature of God. He is veiled in flesh. Again, the ultimate revelation of God to men. Listen, Jesus isn't some new God. He isn't some new idea that's been put forth by God in response to man's predicament. Christ, the Son of God, has been God's plan for redemption and the salvation of his people before the foundations of the world, before time began. See, if you read throughout the Old Testament, the story of Israel, we are constantly receiving glimpses of what is to come. We see the Lord foreshadowing his plan of restoration through Christ Jesus. Pastor Gabe talked about this a little bit last week. Listen, Jesus is how we connect the Old Testament to the New Testament. He is the culmination and fulfillment of God's promises. He is the faithfulness of God fully exercised, displayed in the most incredible fashion. Look, we can make lots of connections between the Old Testament and the New Testament. There are a lot of verses that I could draw on to make this point here, but I want to go to a few to just kind of help us connect Christ to God, how we can see that they're one and the same. I want to highlight just a couple of verses that solidify this truth. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 11, it says, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. It says it again in Hosea 13, 4. But I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me, and besides me there is no Savior. But then if we look at Luke chapter 2, specifically verse 11, it reads, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a what? Say it again. A Savior. Who is Christ the Lord. Huh. So if Yahweh, the most high God in the Old Testament, says he's the one and only Savior, but Luke chapter 2 refers to Christ as the Savior, then the logical progression here must mean that Jesus is what? Don't be scared. Jesus is God. Jesus is God. They are one in the same. Yes, there is distinctness amongst the Godhead, but they are one in the same. There is one God. There is one God. So we know that the prophets in the Old Testament alluded to Christ. We know what the apostles claim about Jesus. What does Jesus say about himself? What does Jesus claim about himself? Just a few brief Verses of reference, John chapter 10, verse 30. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. John chapter 14, verse 9. Jesus says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. John chapter 5, verse 19. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. Really, Jesus, you do everything God does. No wonder they wanted to stone this man. 
John chapter 8, verse 23, Jesus says to them, you are from below, but I am from above. He's claiming of a heavenly uh, being, claiming to be a heavenly being from heaven with God the Father. John chapter 8, verse 58, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. We obviously know that to be one of the Old Testament names for God, the great I am. See, there's going to be a lot of people that try to debunk this truth right here. There, were, there are people who will say, oh, man, you guys are just reading into it too much. And I recall several years back taking a trip. Pastor Tyler, we went to Chicago. He may not even remember this encounter, but we encountered a gentleman on the street, and I believe he was a Muslim, maybe Jehovah Witness. I can't remember which. And we started having a conversation with this guy, and, you know, he finds out we're Christian and we're in the ministry. And he starts saying, oh, man, this, this was his argument. You, you guys are reading too much into that. Jesus never once claimed to be God. You guys are reading too much into that. You're putting things on the text that aren't actually there. But here's the thing about that. Jesus lets the claims stand. If you recall, they said you being a man are putting yourself on level with God, which is why they picked up stones to kill him. Jesus never once says, no, that's not what I'm saying. I didn't say I was God. He never once turns that away. He lets the claims stand. In fact, they knew, the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, they knew exactly what Jesus was claiming, which is why they picked up stones to kill him. Listen, the reason that we're spending so much time on establishing the deity of Christ is because, again, this is a primary doctrine. This matters. Friends, this is, the import, this is important as we think back to the question that I opened with question of who is Jesus. This is not something to be loose about. This isn't a doctrine to be flippant about. If we get this wrong, this compromises everything. Listen, if Christ isn't God, then the gospel isn't good news. He would have no power to save, no ability to conquer sin and death. If Christ isn't God, his sacrifice is insufficient. If he isn't one with God the Father, we have no eternal hope of him preserving us. If he isn't God, he could not gather unto himself a redeemed people. If he isn't God, he cannot provide eternal life. If he isn't the Son of God, his claims were ludicrous, his death was in vain, and his promises are empty. That's why this matters. Brothers and sisters, our salvation and our hope for eternal life hang on this very truth that Jesus Christ is the perfect Son of God come to save. It all rests upon Christ. Our faith lives and dies. It's only as good as the object in which we place it. And praise God for his Son given for us. Amen. Christ, the eternal, preexistent, forever, glorious God, one with the Father. So we understand that Jesus is the eternal, pre-existing God. Number two, Jesus as creator. And we see that in verse three. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. You see, after establishing the eternal and divine nature of Christ, John now moves to the role of this word in creation. Here again, John expresses a profound and astonishing truth about the word. He says that he created all things. 
Verse 3 says that all things were made through him. John even highlights this point in a negative fashion. He says, without him was not anything made that was made. This means all of creation owes its existence to Christ. The totality of the universe, every element, every molecule, every atom, every particle, everything, it has all come into being through him. What an astounding reality that is. A staggering reminder of the power and glory of the Son. That he's created all things. But not only has he brought forth all of creation, Jesus Christ also sustains all of creation. Colossians 1.17. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And what a beautiful and much needed reminder that is, that it is Christ Jesus that's preserving us. The same one that by his infinite and eternal power and wisdom birthed all of creation. He's the same one, Christian, that's holding you fast. It is by his power that all of this, everything you see, is being held together. The great reality is not only is Christ securing us now, Christ has secured our future as well. Praise God for that. Praise God for that. You see, the fact that Christ is creator serves as further proof of Christ's deity. You see, John's claims of Christ as creator solidifies the reality that he is the one true living God. We clearly see throughout the scriptures that God the Father is depicted as the great creator. Right, just a couple of texts. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Psalm 102.25, of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Isaiah 40.28, have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. Even Acts 17, as Paul writes, uh, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he has made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. So this is clear evidence, right? We've seen the biblical case built that God is the creator of all things. So if God is the creator But John says clearly here that through the word, all things were created. In fact, there was nothing made that is made apart from him. And this must mean Christ is one with God of the same eternal nature and creative power. In fact, the reality that Christ is the son of God is a concept we also find in the New Testament as well. I'm sure most of you are familiar with these verses. Colossians 1.16 says, for by him all things were created created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Pause for a second. Brothers and sisters, if you're in here this morning and you're looking for a purpose statement for your life, this is it right here. You were created by God for God. That gives your life purpose. Amen? It says all things were created through Christ and for Christ. Hebrews 1.13, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. 
But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Pause. Let's stop there for a second as well. As well. There are no new revelations. God's given us his word. He's revealed himself to us through his word and ultimately through the living word that is Christ Jesus. And that is sufficient. So it says that in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus Christ, son of God, God's active agent in creation. And the text says, and without him was not anything made that is made. This is written in the perfect tense. This denotes the present state of creation as a continuous result of a previous action, the creative work of God through the Son. Again, in other words, the whole of creation can attribute its existence to God and the work of the Logos, the word that is Christ Jesus. But as we look around us, we're reminded that this creation is fallen and corrupted. Because of sin, what God created through Christ to be good has been tainted. And we're reminded in Romans 8 that this creation, it longs for redemption. Romans 8, 19 through 22, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, and hoped that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole of creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. This is the state of reality that we live in in this fallen, broken creation. But thank God that even amidst our groanings, even as we trudge along in this corrupt and fallen world, longing for eternity, it is Christ that upholds us. Brothers and sisters, this should bring you great comfort and encouragement this morning. Through Christ, all things have been created, and it is through Christ that all things will be redeemed. So we understand Christ as creator. Finally, number three, we see Jesus is the light. Verses four and five. That's what it says. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. See here, John introduces what will become a major theme within the gospel account, this, these themes of life and light. He is expounding upon the glorious realities of the word and his incarnation. He writes, in him was life. Listen, this is no insignificant statement, no matter how ambiguous it may seem. From this opening prologue throughout the remainder of John's gospel, there is a clear emphasis on life. What exactly does John mean by life? What is he referring to here? I think it has a bit of a double meaning, what John means when he uses the word life. So given the preceding verses, John has just explained to us that through the world, through Christ, excuse me, the word, that all things have been created. He's just explained Christ's role in creation 
as the eternal word. So it only makes sense that he's referring to physical life here, right? He talks about Jesus Christ, the, the word as creator. So he says that in him was life, right? So it only makes sense that he's referring to physical life, Christ's role in creating mankind, giving us life. This, however, is not John's main point. The word life has far greater meaning than that. When John says in him was life, he is referring to spiritual life. This is a supernatural life. And this will become increasingly clear as we continue to work through the book of John, as we see continued references to life, specifically eternal life. You see, just as Christ the Son is the source of physical life, He is also the means of our spiritual life, the only means of being spiritually alive. A life that even in our best efforts we could never produce. A life that is impossible apart from him. John chapter 5 verse 26 says this, for as the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son also to have life in himself. The apostle John writes again in 1 John chapter 5 verses 11 and 12, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son does not have life. And then one of the staple verses I'm sure we all have it remembered is memorized is John 14, 6, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You see, this is the gift of life that Jesus provides. This is the gift of life that we all need. It's only afforded to us when we receive Christ Jesus and believe in his name. This is what happens at the moment of our regeneration, at the new birth. By the power of the Holy Spirit and the grace of God, we are given new life through, the faith, through faith in the Son. And for this to happen, we must be born again. Listen, the life that God offers us through Christ is not merely this earthly life, one that can be lost and corrupted. It is an eternal life that we are given when we look at texts like Ephesians 2, we are reminded why we need this life so badly, because it tells us we were all dead in our trespasses and sins. Brothers and sisters, this is the spiritual condition of every man, woman, and child, dead, hopeless, lost, apart from Christ. We're reminded why we need this life in Jesus so desperately. But the good news is also found in Ephesians 2, that God has made us alive together with Christ. Brothers and sisters, this is why the Word became flesh. This is why Jesus comes into the world, to impart life to dead sinners. Jesus himself says in John chapter 10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. The reality is that won't be the case for everybody. This life, this spiritual life, this eternal life is only afforded to those in Christ, those who are part of his sheepfold. I don't want you to miss that. And if you're a believer, you're born again, and you're alive to the matchless worth and majesty of Christ, man, praise God for that. Give glory to the Son for the life that he himself has so graciously bestowed on each of us. 
John says, in him here, he says, in him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. Listen, this light that he's referring to is Christ the Son. He's referring to Jesus coming into the world, his incarnation. Look, we'll see this a little more plainly, a little clearly. We'll walk this out a little bit more next week when we get into verses 10 through 11. But here we are presented with this concept of light and darkness. We're immediately reminded again of the creation, the beginning of creation. Genesis 1-2 says the darkness was over the surface of the deep. But God spoke and said, let there be light. Well, we are certainly reading these verses again in the context of creation. If you're familiar with the Gospel of John, you know he's introducing a deeper meaning here. This theme of light and darkness goes well beyond creation. We know that this is a metaphor for sin and salvation, good and evil, purity and corruption. You see, the light is fully, completely, and most gloriously displayed in Christ Jesus. He says in John 8, 12, Jesus says this, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. See, rather than fully expositing the meaning of this light, John is more concerned with the source of this light. And it is Christ, the light in the darkness. He's the light that shines through men. He's overcome the darkness. It is only Christ that is able to do that. And again, this is a theme that will develop more as we continue through the book of John. It's a theme that's touched on in John 3, John 8, John 9, John 12. But quickly, what I want to do as we close our time is look at what Jesus says in John chapter 12, verse 35 and 36. He says, so Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. While you have the light, lest, uh, walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. When we get to this portion of the text, when we get to John 12, what we'll see is this is Jesus extending a final invitation to his hearers to accept salvation, to surrender to his lordship, to follow him as savior, to walk in this light. And then in verse 46, it says, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Listen, without Jesus Christ, we stumble about in darkness, lost, blind, not knowing where we are going. See, Christ has come as the light so that we might see. We might see our depravity. We might see our lostness. And we see his glorious light revealed, inviting us to follow him to salvation, to freedom, and to life. Listen, it is only Christ Jesus that serves as the light of men. And it is only through him that we have true and lasting life. See, as we prepare to close our time together this morning, it's, it's really easy to look at these five verses and feel like, man, that's a lot of information. It's a lot of information, but there's not much application there. Maybe you're like, okay, I learned a few things, but what am I supposed to do with this? And I think the application here is simply to behold the majesty and worth of Christ Jesus, the Son. 
This is all meant to point you towards the supremacy and inexhaustible glory of Jesus Christ. And this should lead you to live with great freedom and confidence because this Jesus, this Son of God, is the one who has laid down his life for your freedom and forgiveness. You can trust him. You see, understanding God's or Christ's eternal nature, his creative power and his divine essence, seeing him as the glorious light that has come into the world to overcome the darkness should, should lead you to legitimate surrender, devotion, and worship. You see, my hope is that you would leave here able to answer the question, who is Jesus? That you would answer it confidently, firmly, accurately. See, what we believe about Christ relates to so much of our theology. It has a primary place in the life of the believer. See, these truths are essential to knowing Christ. It is only then, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that we are able to believe and have eternal life. Friends, understanding that Christ is the Son of God, sent to save and redeem the lost, it's the hinge upon which the door of belief swings. It's not enough to believe that Jesus is real, or that he existed, or that he was a really good teacher, a fine moral man. It's not even enough to believe that he was divine or that he was a God. You see, nothing short of believing that he is the Christ, nothing short of believing that he is the Son of God and surrendering to his lordship is sufficient saving faith in Jesus Christ. I want to close with a beautiful reminder that comes from Philippians chapter 2. And these verses not only highlight the divinity of Christ Jesus and his status as God, but even more so they highlight this, his incredible humility and sacrifice displayed at the cross. Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse 5. Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Again, what a beautiful picture we have of Christ, the Savior. What a breathtaking reality this is, that the eternal, glorious, all-powerful, perfect Son of God would humble himself and take on the very nature of the humanity that he created and come and dwell amongst us, laying down his own life, enduring the brutality of the cross to provide eternal life and hope and redemption for his own. This is why he is exalted above all others. This is Jesus Christ. My hope and prayer is that you would see him for who he is and 
you would believe and be saved. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful. There's some glorious truths found right here in these verses, God, that we could spend hours on and never truly see you in all of your glory. Father, I pray that with the time we've had here together this morning, that those who may have come in here blind to the realities of Christ are now alive to who you are, that even us that uh, identify ourselves as believers, as followers of Christ, maybe we've been cold to the realities of Jesus, maybe we've uh, been blind to his excellencies and just his all-surpassing worth. Father, I pray that as we leave this place, we would go about with great joy, knowing who Jesus Christ is. We would answer this question confidently for those who may ask. God, that we would look for opportunities and conversations in order to share the truth of Jesus Christ with the people around us. Lord, I pray that these verses would be a comfort to us in the days and weeks and months to come, remembering that Jesus is the eternal, all-glorious God that has saved us, made us some incredible promises, and secured our future. God, help us to believe that. Help us to know that, to see it, and to trust it. And God, I pray for all those in here who may not know you, those who are apart from Christ Jesus. Father, I pray that you would do the work that only you could do, that you would open their hearts to receive the truth about Christ and that they would repent and believe that you would get the glory for that. And it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.